Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,153 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 21 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today we're going to continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Last week we saw Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. This man not only received his physical sight, but he received spiritual sight, which granted him eternal life. And he proclaimed in verse 38, Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And today our scripture is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 42, which is the entire chapter. And it starts on page 1666 in your pew Bible. And as with last week, since it is an extended passage, I'm going to read it as we go through the message. So follow along with me. And I think it will bring meaning to the message today. We see in today's passage that Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but he's also the living door. And all who receive salvation must pass through that door. Now, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand messages. Jesus understood the power of his familiar images to unlock the mysteries of heaven, and he did it so beautifully. At no site is was more common in early Judea, that first century Judea, than the shepherd with his sheep. Those flocks of sheep that would ra- roam over those hillsides, it was a familiar sight to everyone. So as he uses this analogy in today's lesson, everyone in Judea and Jerusalem understood what he said. It w- with some historical and cultural background, we can learn a great deal from these symbols that used, Jesus used to describe himself. As a king of the world, the king of kings, you wouldn't think would describe himself as a lowly shepherd. They weren't really looked upon favorably in the time of Christ. They were sort of even less than the blue-collar workers. They were the ones that type of job no one else really wanted. But to the lost sheep of Israel, that living door and that good shepherd would have been a symbol that everyone could relate with. It was not uncommon for the shepherd to know his animals so well that he would call them out by name. The good shepherd never allowed his flocks to stay away at night. Thieves and animals could easily take the sheep and kill and destroy them. If the pasture was close enough to a village, they would herd all their sheep into the village and keep them in a common pen. And then they would appoint a gatekeeper to guard that doorway. In the morning, the shepherds would lead out their sheep back into the pastures again, but frequently they had to go away from the cities because they needed to find enough ground to graze their sheep. So during the temperate months, they took them far into the hillside, but they always remained with their sheep. They would camp out under the stars for weeks on end and not come back to the village. And then when darkness fell each evening, they would corral their flocks into a cave or some other natural enclosure. And then they would sleep in the entrance. If you look at your bulletin insert on the page with the black and white image, 
You can see this is an actual cave or alcove within the Judean wilderness. And you see at the big opening there, that's where the shepherd would lie. To protect their livestock from predators and thieves, the shepherds herded their animals into these natural enclosures, such as a cave, and then they stretched across the doorway with their own bodies. And they could get a good night's sleep that way because they would know for anybody to get into that sheep pen, they had to come through that shepherd first. And that's the familiar image where Jesus said in John 7 and 9, I am the door of the sheep. Shepherds frequently worked together so that they could pool their resources and they would store multiple flocks of sheep in the same enclosure. And then the following morning, the flocks, because at night the flocks would get all mixed up. They didn't try to keep them separated in that enclosure. And the following morning, the flocks were easily separated by calling them into opposite directions away from that cave or alcove. Author H.B. Morton watched this firsthand when he tra traveled to Israel. He says, early one morning, I saw an extraordinary, extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed, and at the time had come for the shepherds to go in their different directions the next morning, one of the shepherds stood afar off from the sheep, and he began to call them. First one, and then another, then three and four, until the entire flock for that shepherd would be out there, and he would count to make sure that all of his sheep were with him now. In John's account of this unique, it's unique among the Gospels. Now, you remember John the Apostle didn't quote any of Jesus' parables within the book of John. And yet instead he used figurative language and extended metaphors. The self-portrait of the good shepherd draws upon that familiar image that painted in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, in which the Lord warns those unfaithful shepherds, those unfaithful spiritual leaders, that a time would come where he would come to earth to be the shepherd himself. And Jesus claimed to be that fulfillment of that long-standing promise. The religious authorities were slow to pick up on what he was talking about. But after a while, they understood, and they did not like what he was telling them. So let's look at verses 1 through 6 as we begin reading the scriptures. Very truly, I tell you, you Pharisees, and remember, very truly in this passage is a double amen. It's a, it is true, it is true. I tell you, the Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in another way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize that stranger's voice. In a sidebar, which John does throughout his gospel, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, John presents this next discourse in our passage today as a logical continuation of last week's passage where he healed that man that was born blind. But he provides no additional information for us at the time or the place of this event. And this isn't uncommon with John's gospel. Remember, John takes a series of snapshots, and they're not necessarily in chronological orders, but he weaves them 
into the tapestry of his gospel, just like the weaving of this basket forms a basket and it forms a design on it. And that's what John did. He created word pictures in his gospel as he weaved that narrative into the picture, the tapestry that he wanted, that tapestry of the gospel. And then last details for the setting had some integral part of that. He just leaves them out. He doesn't give us every little nuance and and detail of the story. And this discourse today was placed several weeks later than last week's. It was a conversation that he might have had with the Pharisees over multiple times. And this is just a snapshot of him teaching those Pharisees. But he probably taught this letter lesson multiple times to the Pharisees. The primary point of this metaphor is the role of the truth in the world. And Jesus really turned to his truth and turned it to non-believers so that they would believe. Instead, more often, the truth would draw out those who were believing or had an inclination to believe, and they would recognize the truths of his, his message here. Beginning with feeding the multitudes in the wilderness that we talked about in chapter 6, and the discourse that followed where they say, give us another sign, feed us again, is what they were saying. This is just one of those metaphors, those truths that he had unvarnished truth about his identity. His flock began to divide on their own. And he called them out. Only those who recognized his voice would follow him. Genuine believers follow the voice of the master, while those who are not his own or not of his sheepfold would choose to reject him. John's editorial comment, that sidebar in verse 6, at the end of Jesus' illustration is ironic. Their failure to understand merely validated the Lord's point. They chose not to listen to what Jesus was teaching. So we move on to verses 7 through 10. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever trusts through me will be saved. They will go in and co- come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to still and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. That's our abundant life. I think the King James Version says an abundant life. Some other versions do also. And this is what he is referring to, having that abundant life. Jesus followed this double amen from the one he had in verse 1. To interpret, this one is to interpret the first double amen that he had. It is true, it is true. Jesus' predecessors are those priests, those scribes, those Pharisees who presently ruled over the Jews. He identified them as the thieves and the robbers who were trying to steal God's flock from what they're intended to be and take them in a different direction. He cast them in the role that was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 23, Ezekiel chapter 34, and Zechariah chapter 11. Whereas, if you remember when we did early on in John's gospel, when Jesus drove out the, the traders in the courtyard where they were buying and selling sacrifices, it was called Annas' Bazaar. But that, was, that bazaar, where there was so much transaction going on, left the Israelites both physically and spiritually impoverished. Jesus came to bring true abundance. People in the Western world, such as the United States, 
we have bought in sometimes to this prosperity gospel movement to interpret abundance as a mean as a mean material prosperity, the abundance of money and possessions, creature comforts, having a fat wallet, a prestigious job, the nicest home in the city, or the sleekest car in the driveway. Sometimes we buy into that as prosperity that's from the Lord's blessing. And the Lord can use those blessings, but that's not what he's primarily focused on. We see no indication of the followers of Jesus of his day that they had any material wealth. They had no stack of shekels, no pension, no insurance coverage, and not even a guarantee of safety. He promised them quite the opposite. In Luke chapter 9, he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was not preaching against wealth itself. As far as Jesus is concerned, money and possessions are morally neutral. He doesn't need our money and possessions. He may bless us with money and possessions, and if he does, they're in order to build his kingdom. That's what we're to use them for. But if we don't have them, that doesn't mean that there's some sort of curse on us. In fact, many times wealth will distract us from what God's purpose is for our lives. And if that's, that's the case, then we'd be better off without the wealth than to have wealth that would distract us from him. So if the abundance is not cash, if it's not possessions, it's not comfort, then what is it? Given that Jesus' inner circle, those 12 and even those three that were closest to him, suffered persecution and died as martyrs, what abundance did they receive? When he says you should have an abundant life, a life that is full, Jesus offers spiritual abundance. And this is what he was talking about all along, that transcends circumstances like income or health or living conditions and even transcends death. The abundant life, or in the New Living Translation, it says the rich and satisfying life is a life that never ends. We don't have to wait until the end of our physical life, though, to enjoy the abundance that God's given us, to receive that abundance and enjoy it. Abundant life includes peace and prosperity, destiny, a real purpose for life, and the joy of facing adversity. Even when we're facing death, we can have an abundance, and we can have it without fear, and we can have the ability to endure any type of hardship because he will give us the strength to endure. So we move on to verses 8, 11 through 18. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So he sees, when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock is scattered. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. In Jesus' statement, once again, that strong I am, that ego of me in the Greek, 
is paired with the phrase good shepherd. And in this particular passage, it is a very emphatic word in the Greek. It's a clear foreshadowing of the persecution and the suffering and the strong affirmation of his substitutionary death to his believers. And just as important as acknowledgement of truth has always been a lightning rod for evil. Nevertheless, he will not flinch when evil strikes him with all the power of hell behind it. As the creator of the world, he cannot be overpowered by anything, yet he will voluntarily suffer to carry out the Father's redemptive plan. The illustration that Jesus is illustrating here is the hired hands were those Pharisees that really didn't have the best interest of the sheep in front of him. With Jesus, he was selfless. He laid down his own life that he might redeem us. The Pharisees were selfish. He would lay down his life for his sheep. They would abandon all to save themselves. He lived in complete obedience to his father's will. They obeyed their own lust and their own passion. They were more concerned on what people thought of them and controlling what they did and controlling that temple than they were about what God was wanting for them. In the middle of the dialogue, though, Jesus mentioned his other sheep, one flock, one shepherd, all who believe, and that would be the Israelites, the Samaritans from Sychar that we studied about in, in chapter 4, and also us, the Gentiles. We are included in that, where he says one sheep, or one um, shepherd, and we would be one flock of sheep. The Jews, as we move on to verses 19 through 21, it says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? And these were the Pharisees discussing it. But others said, these are not sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a man open the eyes of the blind? And remember, last week's lesson, he healed that man born blind. It's one thing to heal a man who was blind because of some sort of disease, but a man born blind, it was unheard of that someone would heal him. And this is what the Pharisees are starting to argue about. And even within the Pharisees, we can see that division between those who would eventually follow Jesus Christ and the majority of them who would not. Now, Jesus declared earlier that his word is a sort of truth. It divides people. The voice of truth summons his own, and they would follow him because they would recognize his voice and follow him. As expected, it was dividing the Jews. The religious officials, the majority of them, rejected Jesus, as occurred in both chapter 7 and verses in chapter 9, and it continued in this do in this discourse. And you remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And boy, does it. The word of God if you spend time in God's word, it exposes our innermost thoughts. And we realize that our activity and our thought life is contrary to God's precepts. And that's what the sharp 
dividing of his word will do just like a two-edged sword would cut a person or an animal in two. And this is what he says the word does for us. As we move on to verses 22 through 24, the feast of the festival of dedication at Jerusalem, it was winter. And, the, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews who were gathered there around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now the feast of dedication, we know as the feast of Hanukkah. And it was usually celebrated in December, roughly two months after Sukkoth, which was the Feast of Tabernacles, which we studied a couple messages ago. The Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, celebrates the temple's rededication in 165 BC, three years after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the altar. He went into the holy place and he slaughtered a pig on that altar, an unclean animal. And then that created the Maccabean Revolt, which essentially gave Israel their independence, at least for a short period of time. And during Jesus' time, the Jewish resentment of Roman occupation ran very thick now, very high. And especially during this festival, they remembered back when they revolted and received some independence. And the desire for the Messiah was more strongly felt during that Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Now, Jesus, or John's mention of winter here would be somewhat redundant. It was December. Everybody knew it was wintertime because it was Hanukkah. But John uses this once again in the original language as a literary tone. The winter of Jesus' life was fast approaching here. As Jesus walked on that eastern portico of the temple, presumably he came in from the eastern gate. The temple officials surrounded him. They appeared willing to consider the possibility that Jesus was telling the truth all along, that he was indeed the Messiah because they so desperately wanted the Messiah to come and free them from their bondage with the Romans that they were eager to find out. But make no mistakes, they wanted a tailor-made Messiah that fit their desires, not the Messiah that God had sent. As we move on to verses 25 through 31, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They wanted him to say, are you the Christ? And some scholars objected. They say that Jesus never did say, I am the Christ. But I think with strong reason, both which in this passage and other reasons around this, that he gave here that indeed he was to proclaiming that without using the words in front of them, I am the Christ. By the first century, Jewish theologians had attached so much misinformation to the title of the Messiah that people would have expected God, Jesus to be something God never intended. They expected the kind of super David to ride into town on his white horse, a warrior that would lead them to their independence and restore their economy 
That's what they were looking for. Now Jesus will come riding back to earth the second time when he comes to finish building his kingdom and restore that global Eden. But this was not the time. He came this time, the first time, to save those who were sinners. Now Jewish theologians had attached so many outlandish myths about Jesus Christ, that his, about the Messiah coming, that if he claimed the title of Christ, he would have to also bring along that mythic interpretation that they had, that identity that they had for what the Messiah was supposed to be. Instead, Jesus produced all sorts of signs and wonders that were predicted in the Old Testament, which would identify them if they read it that he was the Messiah. Moreover, he freely quoted the Old Testament. He often paraphrased it or used, alluded to messianic messages from the prophets. And yet they didn't recognize it. Anyone willing to set aside their biased expectations for any length of time had enough to realize that he was indeed the Messiah, and they would have no trouble recognizing him. Jesus made his, the earlier indictment plain again. The religious leaders refused to hear the word of God that God made flesh that came and dwelt among us because they had rejected God's word long ago. Their rejection of the true Christ was no, nothing more than a continuation of them rejecting God, which they had done for centuries. Genuine believers, however, they hated the word of truth, that eternal safety that they had as the good shepherd's care, who would lay down his life to save them, and then he had willed his divine power to keep them secure. Belief is the authenticating response to believing that Jesus Christ was the Savior. It is the Savior who does the saving, though, not those who are saved. We don't save ourselves. Therefore, the faithfulness of Christ seals the believer in salvation. It's not our faithfulness to God that seals our salvation. If that would be the case, we would lose our salvation probably multiple times throughout the day or throughout the week. It's God's and Christ's faithfulness. Plain and simple, those who believe in Christ will never be lost. He said it emphatically twice. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus concluded this portion of the discourse with a statement that even was bolder and more provocative than if he had say, I am the Christ. He said, the Father and I are one. It was an allusion to the chief doctrinal statement of the Hebrew faith in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. However, John recorded this statement in his gospel. It wasn't the usual one word that he used for one here. It was, not to get too nerdy in the Greek, but it was a neuter form of what John uses instead of the literal form of the, the masculine form in the Septuagint. The word that John uses here is a singleness of essence. Therefore, a more literal translation would have been, we, meaning the Father and I, are one being. We are one. Many signs included as dramatic, authentic healings had established that he and the Father were one multiple times. And while the English language cannot pick up these subtle nuances, they were profound, and those of Jesus' day knew exactly what he was talking about. They connected the dots, 
And as a result, they prepared to stone him because he didn't, they didn't want to believe that he and the Father were one. So we move on to verses 32 through 39. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good works, they replied, but for the blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in the, your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father sets apart as his very own and is sent into the world? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I have said I am God's son. Do you not believe me unless I do the works of my Father? But if, you do, but if I do them, even though you might not believe me, you believe my works. Then you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. In response to the Jews' intention to stone him, Jesus employed a complex bit of irony that was common among the rabbinic arguments. They would get in the temple and they would argue back and forth, and he used these exact same rabbinic arguments here. He turned their accusations around with a quote from Psalm 82, verse 1. The psalmist reminded Israel that God had appointed judges that were to act like little gods to teach the word of God. But he was, God was still the supreme judge that he had appointed them to rule in their stead. Therefore, they were accountable to that supreme God, but they made themselves not accountable to him. Jesus identified those worthless judges, those religious leaders standing before him and declared to himself, and as he quoted Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 82, chapter, or verse 1, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. For the apostate rulers of Israel, they were judging the supreme judge, and it was nothing short of blasphemy. In reality, they were the ones that should have been stoned. And Jesus pointed to the impossibility of overcoming their self-willed doubt. When he behaved in a godlike fashion by cleansing the temple, by feeding the hungry, by healing the sick, by fulfilling all the promises of Scripture, he was, they were rejecting God because they opposed him. Yet they clamored again for another sign. They said, give us a sign. Tell us plainly that you are the Christ. He invited them to examine his deeds, the definitive proof that the goodness was true, even according to their Hebrew wisdom. The religious leaders reacted in a typical fashion toward those who they could not control. They tried to seize him so they could execute him, but he escaped, and it's, it just says he escaped their grasp or escaped their, the, the Pharisees. And there's several other times in the scripture it talks about Jesus escaping, miraculously probably, but he went out among the crowd. In the final three verses, then John, Jesus went back across the Jordan to, place, to a place where John had been baptizing in the earlier days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all of John, what John, that John said about him, this man was true. And then they placed, many placed, and then in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now Jesus left Jerusalem to minister to another group that were more willing to hear him across the Jordan River where John the baptizer had proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. 
And by now, Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist, that forerunner, as we're told in Matthew chapter 14, leaving John the Baptist's disciples without a leader. They didn't understand what they were to do now. Unlike the little gods in the temple, though, these disciples compared the baptizer's prediction to the works that Jesus were doing, and they responded in belief. As the ministry of Jesus continued, the spiritual distance between his sheep and the other sheep grew wider and wider. The truth he proclaimed about himself and the mission was his, the shepherd's voice calling for his sheep to follow. However, the same truth did not call those who refused to believe. It incited them to violence. Later, he would tell his disciples that the purpose for his confronting those apostate religious leaders was to give them an opportunity to finalize or consummate their sin. And we'll look at that when we get to John chapter 15. But as the Hanukkah came to a close, Jesus retreated it from Jerusalem back across the Jordan River because he had important work to do elsewhere. To those who were willing and wanting to believe in him, Nevertheless, this would not be the last confrontation that he would had with the religious leaders. The division between believers and non-believers grew widely, though not yet to a breaking point. That would happen soon enough as we condense. The first 12 chapters of John occurred over a period of three years. The rest of the book of John was, com was compressed into about three weeks as we pick up steam here toward the end. In the application today, is four qualities for the good shepherd's flock. But I, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Are we part of that good shepherd's flock? At some point in our past, have we asked and be able to recall a time where we repented from our sins and acknowledged in utter helplessness that we could not save ourselves and that we re did receive God's eternal gift through that sacrificing, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf? The Bible teachers teaches that we, it's just a first step when we accept him, of that transforming process. And as the years pass, his sheep will grow and follow the shepherd, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, that perfect imager of God. Now, in his discourse with the religious experts, Jesus described four qualities of the sheep. His purpose was to show that none of the religious experts bore any evidence of these qualities, and therefore, they could be regarded as not of his sheepfold. And in the bulletin insert on the other side, I've listed these four qualities of a good shepherd's flock. The first one is God's sheep are sensitive to his leading. Verse 27, the first part. Now, if you travel the world over and meet believers in different countries and different cultures, even speaking different language, there'll be a common bond between those believers because they're of one flock with one shepherd throughout the world. Second, God's sheep are eager to obey his command, the second half of 27. A genuine believer wants to obey. They are motivated by love and not fear. Furthermore, true believers soon learn that obedience allows them to enjoy life to the fullest. We of all people should have a rich and satisfying life. Third, the God's sheep are confident in verse 28. Believers rest in the confidence that Christ has done everything to secure their eternal safety for them. Because of an, he is entirely faithful, 
we can rest in confidence assurance that we will be preserved even until the end of the age where evil will no longer exist. And fourth, the sheep are secure in verse 29. This is a fact, not a feeling. Regardless of our insensitive disobedience at time or fearful, being as fearful sheep we choose to be, we are secure in the flock. This is not a suggestion that behavior's believer is irrelevant or unimportant. On the contrary, people who will willfully resist the growth and, evident, and show no evidence of growth in their lives need to ask themselves, am I of that sheepfold? Am I really following that good shepherd? Because we are incapable of holding on to salvation just as we're, we're unable to be saving ourselves in the first place. And while we hold tightly to this fourth quality, let me encourage you to call, cultivate those first three, to continue following the Lord, to remain sensitive to his leading, to obey him in diligence without any hesitation, and to, then to rest in the confidence of his power to protect us from evil. After all, he is the good shepherd. So following him is for our good. If the sheep would wander from the shepherd, he would do everything possible to go and bring that one lost sheep back in to that sheepfold. We are held secure in Jesus Christ. And that's the message of today. No one shall snatch them out of my hands. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. The next Sunday, we're going to focus on Jesus' most famous and spectacular of all miracles within his ministry. And that was raising of his good friend Lazarus. So the message is titled, Back from Beyond, next week. And I'd encourage you to read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 46 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you are our good shepherd, that you have come to protect us, to bring you, us into your fold, to be our shepherd. May we be obedient sheep. May we follow you. May we hear your voice and do what you say. May we spend time in your word that we might know what you're telling us, Father. We thank you for everyone being here today. For those that aren't able to, Father, we pray that you'll keep them in your arms. We thank you for this blessing that we can know that we have eternal life, not based on what we've done, but based on what you've done. We thank you for this and pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.